Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Bottoming, the LGBTQ mental health podcast about rock bottoming and beyond. Kindly sponsored by Joe Malone London. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at BottomingPod or visit BottomingPodcast.com for more content relating to each episode. We've also added a support page to the website to direct you to the right place if you're struggling or need someone to talk to. Thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts. Hi, my name is Brendan. And my name is Matthew, and our pronouns are he and him. It's still history, man. It's been a long month, hasn't it? <laughs> Should uh, be April by now. <laughs> it has been a long month. We released our first two two history month episodes, um, obviously at the start of the month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is how time works. Um, in the very first episode, we spoke to Tash and Shivani from the Logbooks podcast, which I'm sure you'll know at this point. Absolutely. And then for episode two, we spoke to Adam Smith, who is the author of Deep Sniff, but also coincidentally is also involved in the Logbooks podcast. Yeah. So across the episodes, we managed to chat to all of them involved. So it was it was really a really lovely chat with both of them, actually. It was um, a treat. And also I had a, a nice conversation with my mum yesterday who um, was educated on poppers. Oh. Yeah. So we got something <laughs> from it. <laughs> um, so as we continue History Month, we are releasing another two episodes today. Yeah. Special, greedy. So in the first episode that you are now listening to, we're going to speak to Christine Burns, MBE, who... Honestly, the chat was just a lovely. wealth of all sorts of history and facts, and she's just so, so lovely. Yeah. So that was fantastic. Yeah. If, 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 if you did listen to the last two episodes, you will have heard me um, gush about about Christine um, because of how stunning she was. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get to listen to that this week. This very episode you're listening to right now. This, this one here right now, yeah. <laughs> 
And if you stick around for part two, we speak with Saba Chowdhury, who has written the book Supporting Trans People of Colour. And again, just another absolute pot of knowledge. Um, pot? Is that, a, is that a phrase? I don't think it is the right phrase, no, <laughs> but we, all, we know what I mean. <laughs> um, but they also work with gendered intelligence as well, which we have spoken about um, in previous episodes. So, mm. yeah, when you've listened to this and got your fill, have a little cup of tea, have a little break, and then get over to part two. It's been an eventful two it weeks. It has. It really has since um, the last time we recorded. We recorded the day before we went off my birthday, didn't we? Yeah. I'm going to summarise because there's a lot that I actually can't go into detail because it is uh, a police investigation. But we obviously recorded on the Thursday, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Had that gorgeous cake. Yeah. Um, but we went, we had a really lovely night, actually. It was gorgeous. Everyone had a lot of fun in a, in a, a queer venue in London. Um, and then it just escalated into absolute chaos on the way out um, involving some people that accused someone of something they didn't do and then when questioned they turned violent so it resulted in three of my group being punched in the face uh, and I got pushed on the floor um, I mean you've known me for a lot of years mm-hmm. I don't think you would class me as an aggressive or violent person <laughs> Depends on the day. So, uh, um, no, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> um, I am trying to dance around here the words to make sure that it's, um, you know, not jeopardizing the criminal case at the moment and any future, uh, also other cases that we may need to raise from it. But it actually resulted in my poor boyfriend needing to have surgery on his face. And I hope he doesn't mind me talking about this, but he's had to uh, have plates put in his face because the people that did it, um, Badly, obviously injured his face and gave him several fractures. So he is recovering well. Um, but the last, yeah, the last week has just been many, many hours between hospitals and police stations and people not doing the jobs correctly and having to follow things up. And then it's just been nonstop. So yeah, it is being investigated as a hate crime, which is obviously good in that sense, in one sense, but. Yeah, I, I won't talk about it anymore just because I don't want to jeopardise anything. So in summary, yeah, that is, it's been a week. Let's just say that. Well, I think you should be comfortable because I don't think anyone will have any idea what, what happened based about. on... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, for, for people who, do, who don't understand, why is it good that it's being treated as a hate crime? So again, I'm being extra cautious what I'm saying. Because of what happened and the, I guess the ignition for how it happened. It, it started because someone claimed something happened that didn't happen. And that was rooted in, in homophobia, essentially. Okay. And then when questioned on that, it then turned like, incredible. Well, it turned very violent, but, but completely unproportionate. Like there should not have been any anywhere close to anything that happened. Um, as I say, the issue was at a queer venue. So I've got fault with the venue mm. for the way that they handled it. Um, I've got fault with with a lot of areas in this whole thing actually, which has just made the last week worse. Um, so to answer your question around the hate crime, it's because it just means that the right procedures are followed in terms of how that may be investigated or prosecuted, and also when things are logged as a hate crime, having that sort of data there should then help anything in the future when it comes to say planning or education or learning. So. Um, yeah, it's one of the reasons why, and obviously we, we've spoken about this in previous episodes, we know that a lot of LGBT people especially don't feel comfortable mm-hmm. navigating the police system. I've not had to do it before, and it is not, it's not fun at all. 
Um, I like to think that I, I guess, know the sort of thing that should be done. But even with that, it just completely knocks your confidence um, because there's so many things happening. And yeah, I, I say none of us have ever been in any situation like this before. So it's just been really intense. But to end on a positive, I will say having the people around us that we've had over the last week has been, it's just been really special. And I think the, especially because the birthday night out that was really fun up until the point of leaving the venue, um, it was bringing together different people that I don't think a lot of the people that were there have actually met one another. It was like mm-hmm. very different groups. And as far as I know, everyone had fun. Everyone's told me they had fun apart from that. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was really nice. And obviously the the follow through of having that um, group of friends and group of support there has been lovely. It was also, I'm going to just give specific shout outs as well to Lapsley who sent us some flowers mm-hmm. over there. Um, and also to Jamie Windust who we interviewed back in season two who yeah surprised us by turning up with gorgeous gifts we went for a lovely coffee it was the first time i've actually met jamie um in person it's only been digital isn't that crazy (laughs) um so yeah specifically thank you to to both of you because and obviously everyone else um we've been a bit overwhelmed this week but yeah that is it how are you yeah i'm good (laughs) um better knowing you're all right and everything's okay um yes 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 fine oh we've got a new cat Oh, of course. Oh, gorgeous, gorgeous oh. little cat. The name is changing. Often okay. it started as Donatella. Now it's Carmella because she's quite aggressive. Apparently okay. from the Sopranos, but I've never seen the Sopranos. No, I've seen the Sopranos. But she's such. A, she's like a little baby. She was flea ridden when she arrived. <laughs> she was. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and her nails were really sharp, and like she liked to scratch and bite, uh, bite. But we're starting to train her to only scratch and bite. Her toys, not the humans. Okay, so progress. It's, it's progress. Yeah, fleas still. No fleas. And there was no chance you could have given them. To fleas. Her. No, no. Okay. Thankfully. Good. Okay. Fleas don't live on humans. <laughs> you piece of shit. <laughs> As we mentioned at the start of this episode, we are going to be chatting to Christine Burns, MBE. Sadly, we only had 40 minutes, otherwise we would have spoken to her for hours on end, mm-hmm. uh, picking her brain about her entire life, basically, yeah, which has just honestly. been one huge political campaign. <laughs> yeah, but also doesn't see that, doesn't see, no. see that part of it and doesn't Mm-mm. think of view them, like view the work that she's done in that way. No. Which is just really refreshing as well. <laughs> admirable she's not doing it for the likes she's not doing she's not it's not lip service ever with christine she's all about the work yeah so here's christine my name's christine burns mbe uh my pronouns are she and her and i've been knocking about on the uh transactivism front for somewhat over 30 years now so uh so I, i feel like i've seen it all done it all <laughs> so to start us off this is lgbt history month february in the uk so what does that mean to you when i was first invited to get involved with lgbt history month which was back right at the beginning in november 2004 um i'd already by then decided how important it was that people uh, in uh, the lgbt minorities uh, understood the history, uh, the things that we've been through, uh, sort of role models of, uh, of, of 
people who could inspire us, but also importantly, from a political point of view, to understand the history of how we got Mm -hmm. to the place we were at. And at the end of 2004, uh, Parliament was just about to debate the Civil Partnership Bill. Uh, It had passed the Gender Recognition Act in the summer. Um, So this had been a really important time, but it, uh, and that had really brought home to me how important it was to understand the context. Mm -hmm. And since I'd been involved by that time for uh, about 12 years, and understood what we'd done to get where we had got. Uh, I was also really scared that because so much of it was actually done um, in a in a fledgling online form and with a, a, a community online that couldn't possibly represent all the people we were fighting for, mm. that the, the, there was a generation that was coming up who might never actually really appreciate. Um, how it was that the the rights that they were suddenly acquiring had actually come about. This month, we've kind of gone, you know, we've had a few of them, especially to get bigger every year as corporates and different um, different organisations get involved. But it is a great time to reflect on um, where we've come from, as you mentioned, and also the work that has been done by many, many people to get us where we are today including yourself so thank you um can you talk about some of the amazing work that you've done with the press for change campaign um and also you mentioned again the gender recognition act but the involvement in helping draft that as well christine would you please tell us your life story (laughs) (laughs) no actually a small question I, uh, (laughs) I, i transitioned sometime before i got involved in activism and according to the advice at the time what you were supposed to do was to, um, to to transition to get the surgeries and things that you needed and then disappear into society and live in what trans people called stealth uh, because uh, without secure rights to employment and uh, other things that keep you safe uh, the most the safest thing you could do as a trans person was for people to not know you were a trans person mm. um, so I got involved uh, partly because I'd realised that even being hidden like that was no protection. I'd had problems with a car insurance. Um, I was shortly to go on and have problems with um, a health insurance. Um, but so I realised that we couldn't just leave things as they were. And it seemed like a very auspicious time as well, because um, in 1986, a trans man called Mark Reese had become the first trans person to take Britain to the European Court of Human Rights mm-hmm. uh, over two very key rights. One is the, the right to private life and correspondence, that's Article 8, and the other is the right to marry. And at the time, and this was very ironic for a government that was about to pass Section 28, um, barristers for the UK were uh, arguing in court at Strasbourg that Mark wasn't denied the right to marry, because uh, the law saw him as a woman and he could marry a man. So they were openly advocating that this this, this uh, man with a deep voice and a big beard and uh, obviously a man should marry another man uh, because that kept their ledgers <laughs> tidy. Um, so he, he, he went to court in 1986. Um, he didn't win. But he started a really important conversation and he got people thinking about you know, where they'd never thought before that trans people had problems because we were 
unfortunately invisible by our own by our own hand, um, that people started to see that this was a tremendous injustice. Um, and then uh, about three years later, in 1989, a trans woman uh, called Caroline Cossey, also known as the model Tula, also took an almost identical case to the European Court of Human Rights. Um, and she looked as if she was going to win, and then she lost, but on a very much smaller uh, difference of, of opinion between judges. Um, so it was clear that there was a, things were moving in the direction that was favourable to us. And also the big thing we all took out of this was that this was a place where you could actually have people listen to the truth of these injustices. We couldn't go to the press. The press thought we were just fodder to, to sell newspapers on Sundays in tabloids. Um, we couldn't go to MPs because at the time, we didn't think there's any MP would think that there were mm -hmm. votes in, you know, in campaigning for, for these strange, uh, tiny minority of people mm. who thought, you know, people thought we were perverts. Um, so to actually realise that the courts don't do fake news, they're interested in the facts, and the facts were pretty clear that we were really uh, suffering indignities and you know, denial of our rights uh, by the status quo. And so there was, uh, there was something that could be done. Mm. And for about 25 years up until that point, we hadn't thought there was anything that could be done. It was hopeless. This was the status quo. Mm. You know, if you, if you were trans and you transitioned, then this was just what you had to accept. And it was clear that it needn't be and that there was a place for an activist group to be formed. Mm. Now, I wasn't there at the very beginning of this, uh, but some of my uh, colleagues and friends were in setting up this thing called Press for Change at the recommendation of the Liberal Democrat Home Affairs spokesman at the time, um, whose name momentarily escapes me. I'll be back with that in a moment. <laughs> Alex Carlyle, yes. You got it. Uh, small fact, he, he, also, he also defended Paul Burrell, uh, Princess Diana's butler. But oh, that's, interesting. But that's, <laughs> that's Very interesting. A, a little throwaway sprat. <laughs> um, but uh, it was, he was right. And he said, you know, you need to go away. You need to set up a campaign. Uh, and it, you won't get there fast. It'll probably take you about 10 years. He said that in 1990. Um, and he was pretty right because we actually got where we needed to get to legally by about 2002. So he wasn't, he wasn't far yeah. out. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, so I got involved the following year when I kept bumping into one of the founders at uh, international conferences and he said, oh, do you want to come along to one of our meetings and see what you can do with us? And that's how I got involved in Press for Change in, back in mm. 1993. Now, in those days, we were very small. Um, people weren't on the internet because they, to the public, there wasn't an internet. Mm. Uh, there was certainly not a World Wide Web. These things, I was a, a, an IT consultant. I could see these things on the horizon. And our problem as a campaign in those days was we probably had about a 1,000 people on paper mailing lists. And if we wanted to send a newsletter, we could do that, but you had to print the newsletter. Mm. Then you had to have a party in somebody's house to, to fold the newsletter, stuff it in an envelope, stick a label on, stick stamps on it, and send, send, send it out. 
And that was an extreme, you know, if you're sending a thousand first class uh, mailings, that's 250 pounds. Yeah. So it was, it was not that you could do very often and you couldn't very move very fast. Hmm. And I was saying to my colleagues, look, this thing has just come along. Um, initially, the World Wide Web was like being able to make your own brochure hmm. electronically. Um, it didn't have much more to it than that. But we could take news, we could take uh, legal judgments, and we could put them online, and we could explain them to people. Mm. And slowly, we could actually create a body of people who understood why there was a case for campaigning for our rights. And that sort of grew our strength. Um, and they were saying to me, oh, Christine, well, it's all right, you, you've got bags of money and uh, you can afford these things, but other people can't buy computers. And then along came um, Amstrad with mm. a cheap uh, personal computer, which blew that argument out of the water <laughs> as well. And, so, and I just had this feeling that if we build it, they will come. Yeah. And that's how we sort of came to be. Um, we, we really started to move to strength when more and more people came online. Mm. And I had a fantastic colleague called Claire, who was much better at programming things than I was. And so we had a partnership. I wrote the copy for the website and she, she maintained the system and, uh, and promoted it. And then she created a, a, an email list server so we could mm. send news very quickly to people. And the first time we put that into action was in uh, the beginning of 1997. Wow. Um, wow. And, um, oh no, it was in 1998 because we'd had, we'd had a Labour government by then. Mm. And we'd also won a, a very important judgment in the European Court of Justice, mm. uh, which said that um, trans people were covered by the Equal Treatment Directive as far as our uh, employment rights were concerned. And therefore we had the same rights as anybody else did under the Sex Discrimination Act. And the government, that this new Labour government, wanted to actually formally incorporate that into the law, but mm. they wanted to do it in a way that actually stripped away a lot of the things we'd just won. And so they set up a consultation, and we used this new tool. By this point, we've got about 200 people online. And um, I remember scanning this document, this consultation document, and then proofreading it and uh, sending it out to all these people by our, with our new tool and just getting them motivated to say, I'm not going to tell you what to say, but read this yeah. and then write to this address about how mm -hmm. it impacts you. And then also go and see your MP. Yeah. And meanwhile, uh, my yeah, so more snail mail oriented colleagues were doing the same thing in the uh, in, in, in the paper correspondence. So we got this thing out very fast. And the uh, the government didn't know what hit it. Mm. So they'd never done a consultation before with the public. Mm. And they thought this this thing would be really easy. You just uh, you just <laughs> you know, make these regulations, yeah. you stick them in front of Parliament, say, yeah, yeah. Ooh, yeah. and then <laughs> maybe a couple of people writing and that's it and <laughs> they had 300 responses where they had expected none yeah and it just uh, it blew them off the rails and in fact the whole process stopped for a year while they licked their wounds and thought how do we go about dealing with this but the effect it had for us was that it got us an opportunity to talk to senior civil servants, mm. because eventually we were invited to go and meet the minister as mm. well, uh, Margaret Hodge. 
And I remember being in a room with her over lunch. I'd said to my boss, because we had an office in London, I said, I'm just going to be a little bit longer for lunch today, uh, Keith. He said, well, why? Where are you going? In some, somewhere nice to eat? I said, no, I'm going off to meet the, uh, the employment minister. Uh, so, oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I remember sitting through an hour with her and being... I felt I've only got one shot at this. And so I was fairly robust mm. in defending what we needed to secure in this legislation. I remember when we left, I looked back and she was, this is a, this is a woman who terrorizes the captains of industry. Uh, and uh, she was leaning back on her desk going, <gasps> <laughs> and going down the list, I said, look, you know, we'd like to talk to your other colleagues in other ministries because a lot of government at that time wasn't on email. Yeah. Um, sometimes we tried to guess their email addresses. Um, <laughs> and other times we just had to write to them with bits of paper and stamps. Mm. And so we began to open the door to being listened to and for them to understand that um, we were people they could do business with. Mm. You know, I was, in, by day, I was a, a senior consultant with an international IT consultancy company. Mm. People paid thousands of pounds a day for my time. Why shouldn't a government listen to me mm. and my colleagues? And so we had an in and we actually began to be in the, in the position of being able to move things forward mm. a little bit at a time so that, and all that time, Stephen, my colleague Stephen Whittle, was helping bring forward additional uh, cases in the European Court of Human Rights. We had another one in 1998, um, which unfortunately, again, we lost, but only by one vote. If one one judge had voted the other way, we would have won at that yeah. time. Wow. Uh, and then there was another one in 2002. And by this point, the European Court of Human Rights was just thoroughly pissed off with Britain. <laughs> Um, the only polite way to put it was that they, uh, you know, they, they've been told over and over, this is very complicated, we're looking mm. at it, uh, it finally balanced points and so on, and we're going to come up with something. And they hadn't. It was all bleh. Yeah. So they finally said, well, okay, it's time to rule on this. And so they unanimously ruled in favour of these plaintiffs who've taken their cases in mm. 2002. And consequently, the government then had to bring forward some legislation. And I remember us getting the call and saying, um, would you like to come in and talk to us? And so we, we went uh, to this meeting with a very senior civil servant in St. James's house opposite St. James's Station. And they brought out the nicest crockery <laughs> and, and, and gorgeous chocolate biscuits and I thought we're in here so we then spent two years working uh, a lot of it in at, at the time in enforced secrecy on how to create uh, what became the Gender Recognition Act we didn't get all the things we wanted at the time um, but yeah I often liken it to how we got to uh, the equal age of consent for lesbians mm. and gays as well that you know, that first it was 1967, it was 21, then it was 18, and only finally did we get to 16. Um, so politics is often the art of what you can manage to achieve at the time and yeah. be prepared to come back and fix some of those bits later. Mm. So that's why I wasn't surprised 
when another generation, you know, 10 years later, wanted to say, it's time to update the Gender Recognition Act. Mm. Um, you know, please don't be offended, Christine. See, mm. <laughs> no, we're not. You know, what kept you so long? Yeah. <laughs> so I can't remember what your original question was, but I think I've answered it. 100%. Oh, really? Honestly, yeah. that, it's so That's fascinating, fantastic. especially... I think it's quite easy for, as you mentioned, now obviously now a big conversation is around the Gender Recognition Act again. And I think it's really easy to just see what has happened before as like an abstract thing. Like, you know, it is there, it exists. But without speaking to people and listening to people that were there doing it on the ground, it's, it's really difficult to, I think, imagine how it was. And I think those stories are needed to reinvigorate what we're doing today as well. Because- so. It comes back to your previous question: Why is you know, why is LGBT yeah. History Month important? Yeah. Because you're right that there's a whole generation now to whom that's just oh that yeah you know, it's just called the Gender Recognition Act 2004, and that's it. And it's always been that way. <laughs> yeah, how it happened is, yeah. is a whole yeah, yeah, yeah. story. So I, I I built a memoir around it. So yeah. So also for those who are listening and don't know, you also edited. Um, the book Trans Britain Our Journey from the Shadows on your shelf gorgeous there we are (laughs) gorgeous cover (laughs) Um, what was this process like pulling together all these different stories and voices well um, I hadn't originally uh, intended to to write it or or produce it because I'd done in 2013 I'd done uh, a two-part book uh, called Pressing Matters, Mm. which was the inside story of what I've just told you. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was the the, the nuts and bolts about how you build a campaign and how we came to be in the position we were in, Mm. in the middle of 2004 with the Gender Recognition Act. Um, So I thought I'd I'd done that. Mm. And then a couple of years later, in 2016, um, a publisher who I knew quite well said, you know, could you do as another book? Uh, and I said, well, I'll, I'll go away and think about it. And I thought, well, I can't replicate that format. Yeah. And I I rationalized doing that previous one on the basis of uh, I'll somehow m- weave it around my own um, memoir as well mm-hmm. so that there's a, re- yeah, there's a reason to tell it. Uh, so I can't do that. So I can't make myself you know, a, a, the first voice in the book. And so I thought, how else? And, and also... A lot of this stuff, there is no uh, official evidence for, because for all the time since the early 1950s, the press has regularly lied about us. It's Mm. painted us in a particular way. So you as historians, you won't ever get anything useful, really, from from the mainstream media. Mm. Um, So I thought, well, I've got an address book packed with people uh, and I know that so-and-so was there when that happened and so-and-so was there when mm-hmm. that happened. Somebody, so-and-so was an, an expert on such and such. So I thought, well, maybe we can do this as an anthology. Mm-hmm. So I built a timeline uh, for all the things that actually happened from really about the mid-1960s, which was when the first support group for trans people was formed, the Beaumont mm-hmm. Society, um, and how people... You know, met up in those days or mm. or where were safe places to go and then took that forwards until around about well the, the time that the book was being written in 2016 2017 
um, and then picked out people who could tell those stories. And it very soon became apparent that there were three major subdivisions to this story. There was a period of time when, well, actually four if you count, you know, the, the period before the 1960s mm-hmm. when trans people, you, <laughs> you were on your own, mm. <laughs> um, but we existed. Mm. Um, but certainly there was at this time of uh, the growth of uh, uh, self-support organizations. And that was a really important period. And it shocked me to realize that it lasted really from 1965 until we got to activism in 1990. Mm. So it was 25 years. Now, that was all we had. It was all about other trans people meeting and telling you how to avoid getting arrested by, uh, by, by the police or how to avoid getting sacked, how to, and all, all the how-tos about how to survive. Mm. Um, so then we had this period that started around about 1990-92, which was activism. And that went on for initially with us for about 15 or 16 years. I retired from that campaign in 2007. And all the things we did were from the same team in that period of time. And then you get this period from 2007 until nearly the present day when Mm. it was really apparent that there was a whole new generation that had come up. And one of the reasons I retired was to make sure that they didn't feel that they were constrained by having to ask for permission to do things. Mm. I thought really importantly for our community, yeah, our community mm. was that people should actually now build a whole new structure, have new specialists, have new stars or whatever, mm. so that they could take forward the things that needed to be done after we'd largely done the legislation. Because uh, the legislation is important. It provides the security. To me, for instance, the fact that I couldn't be sacked uh, mm-hmm. just for being trans, yeah. you know, it was an important piece of security to be able to do uh, activism. Mm-hmm. And to be able to safely say to my to my boss, I'm off to see the employment minister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too many questions. Um, so uh, so that made that gave me three three pieces of book, and then I needed to to, to string it together. So I wrote some mm. sections in between, but largely I, I gave a fairly simple brief to each person I'd picked out, um, and I think there were 22 people in the end, mm. uh, and said, "Can you write about?" this mm-hmm. touching on these things but you know i'm not going to give you any more brief than that mm-hmm. and i didn't tell them what other people were writing they were writing just about the bit they were asked to do and, mm-hmm. that, and that's a really key part of it i think because um completely unaware of what everybody else was writing they managed to write, write uh chapters that mesh together mm-hmm. really well because mm-hmm. in historical terms if a number of people write about the same thing mm-hmm. and they are all in agreement without having ch- compared notes then you can say yeah <laughs> right that bit that bit of history is nailed down yeah, yeah. sometimes uh, i mean there was, there, were, there were quite a few different opinions about an early um doctor um who, who provided the gender identity clinic in the, the 1960s and early early 1970s and people had really different views on him and I thought, oh, well, that's, that's work for future historians to yeah, delve yeah, into yeah, that. Definitely. Because obviously there's... there's You've had there's, different experiences. That, that's, that's more complicated. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that's, that's, 
that's how it that's how it worked and uh it worked out remarkably well uh, not mm. everybody stuck to their word count um but <laughs> yeah, can you write me three thousand words came, became here's, here's seven thousand words <laughs> oh, oh thank you <laughs> and that's the hardest thing actually is to try and take a knife and cut out this that weren't, yeah, that yeah. were lovely but actually You've didn't serve the that's right, because I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to produce a book that wasn't just for trans people. Yeah. Anybody could read it. So there weren't any terms that weren't expl- explained mm-hmm. or obvious. Um, there was no wagging of fingers because mm-hmm. people were telling it like it was. Um, and generally speaking, I thought it, you know, it, made, it made history approachable because yeah. it was all about human lives i remember the one thing that went wrong for me was i I said to them all um i'd like you to write in the third person or sorry the second person about you know so you're a narrator saying what happened like an expert historian not one of them did it was all (laughs) i did this i did that so i I gave in on that one i thought okay this is how it's going to (laughs) work and actually i'm glad they did because i think Mm -hmm. the book is better for that because it is very personal yes completely so i mean as well as obviously two books you also produced the podcast is that right um 10 years ago just over 10 years ago uh longer than that actually Mm. um i remember we were always trying out new things Mm. uh with the press for change online platform Mm -hmm. um and i was very keen with uh in the early days i'd said to my colleagues that we're going to be going out on behalf of people Mm -hmm. who don't know us yeah so um I want to put our pictures on there. I want to put our profiles on there. I want people to know mm-hmm. who is speaking for them. Build that trust. But then as, as time progressed, um, I also thought, really, they should be able to hear who we are as well, mm-hmm. uh, because there was no YouTube in mm-hmm. 2005. That didn't come along till 2006, so we couldn't do that. Most people were on dial-up modems, so uh, even if we were going to do audio, we had a we had a constraint that the audio had to fit eight megabytes, mm. so it oh could be downloaded gosh. in a reasonable time. Wow. But also, the widget <laughs> that we had on the screen when you click to play yeah. could also only ha- handle an eight megabyte file. So, wow. uh, if, if you ever go to those recordings and think they sound like medium wave <laughs> on a bad night. <laughs> That's because That's we had we kept <laughs> turning down the bitrate until until the file fitted mm. eight megabytes. So there's no so those are the early days of just trying to get stuff out there. And often, quite often, there was no commentary. It was just mm. a speech I'd given or an essay I'd re- read, and I spoke it to the microphone, mm. um, just so that people had that little bit extra to mm. understand about us. Mm. Um, or the other thing was. The, at the time I started it, even not even the word podcast had been coined. I think mm-hmm. it, I think it was Apple who coined the word when they launched, relaunched iTunes in uh, 2005, and they mm. added this facility to support podcasts. And uh, so when I wanted to do this, I, I, I had a terrible trouble trying to get hold of equipment. And uh, I managed to buy a vocal microphone. That was it. That was no problem. Yeah. And then how am I going to get my speech into uh, MP3 format, into, into digital format? So I looked around and I finally found uh, a machine um, which could record direct to, uh, to, to digital form. Mm-hmm. 
cost 550 pounds <gasps> it was my it was my christmas present to myself oh my wow so i had this equipment and uh, it was it took too much power to be able to work on its batteries so i had to take this enormous <laughs> charge with me as well but it enabled you know me to get out but then when i'd left press for change i still wanted to do some more of this and by that point in uh, late 2007 we were beginning to see the emergence of the first podcast platforms mm. uh, I, I discovered there was this thing called Podbean mm-hmm. um, and that seemed to work it was very some of the facilities were very crude mm. but I could make it work yeah and then that worked quite well and then the following year I bought uh, I got it here ah, I bought a much smaller recorder <laughs> Oh yes, <laughs> it's a little. It's actually yeah. it was designed for it was designed for musicians to audition themselves. Oh, and, you know, when you're so when you're just quality. plucking away and you get you get a riff, yeah. you don't want to forget it. You've yeah. recorded it, and this this produced fantastic sounding. It also came with a digital audio workstation, mm. so I could by this point I could now have a signature tune and I could talk over it, <laughs> do these things, you know, as well as editing. Trying to convince people to try these things out, mm, yeah. you know. When, when, so, what's the point? How does it work? And yeah. you know, what, and it, you know, I'd, I'd left podcasting before it became popular. Yeah. So, <laughs> and and there were there were ways and means for people to make money for it <laughs> from it if they wanted. But it was it was a great time because again. It comes back to history. Mm-hmm. What I found I wanted to do, because although I ostensibly with um, just plain sense, the name of the podcast, mm. I was trying to cover the whole area of equality and diversity. So all the equality strands, I had stories on everything. Mm-hmm. But the ones that really interested me the most were the opportunity to talk to significant figures in, mm. in trans, not just as campaigners, but also other figures as well. So I got a fantastic uh, interview with Adele Anderson, a fascinating idea. Mm. Um, and there was um, oh, Calpurnia Adams from, from America coming over to London. I got a fantastic it was horrible because I was I was asking her questions about the murder of her boyfriend. And oh. I've never felt more the responsibility of a mm. journalist than actually make, get, asking her to go through that on mic. Yeah. But she was, she, she tells it so well. And then there were people like Nadia. Mm-hmm. Nadia was absolutely brilliant to interview. Mm. So over the years, and of course, uh, campa- campaigners like Stephen and Mark as well. Mm-hmm. So there was plenty of material. I did, a, I think I did about a hundred episodes in the wow. end. And then because I was retiring from work as well mm-hmm. and it was work that provided the excuse for me to have the podcast mm. that it was time to it was time to wind that up and again hope that I inspired other people yeah to, to go on and do the same thing and nowadays you know I've, I've lost count of how many podcast interviews I've given <laughs> and this is a lot easier because <laughs> I just rattle on and yeah. you have to edit it it's great yeah. <laughs> well yeah I mean the, the systems have got become a lot more um streamlined <laughs> as well yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, like you said, with in terms of LGBT History Month, it's it's um, all those episodes are still there. People can still go back and listen to them. There's, like you said, this anthology of ninety plus episodes, um, and all of the conversations you were having are still incredibly important to the history that has that has happened. So yeah, everyone should go check that out if they haven't already. But thinking of now, I guess 
the future and, and where you kind of see the world going, what further change do you hope to see for trans people in the UK? That's a big question. But... Yeah. Well, I suppose it's predicated on the fact that I'd like to see us get past this awful mm. period of time with this um, really artificially confected moral panic. Mm. Because nothing about this moral panic is based on any truth. It's it's based on a series of lies. We seem to be in a, a period of history mm-hmm. where lying passes as being okay as a political um, p- political tactic. You know, whether mm-hmm. it's in the US, which, who are at least now actually really dealing with the fact that they've been you know subjected to a system that was based on lies for now six years, and they're getting towards nailing the people responsible. Um, but also in Britain, where you know, we were not so long ago, about five or six years ago, we were regarded as one of the most advanced countries in the world in terms of LGBT rights, mm-hmm. and deservedly so. I guess, you know, by, by the time I was actually starting to think of doing Trans Britain, I thought, actually, you know, this was a good time to do a celebratory retrospective of our history mm-hmm. because we were, we'd gone through the worst. And, yeah. we, you know, there were lots of social changes that still needed to be done. Um, but it was, you know, it was all positive stuff. And I, I anticipated that it would carry on being good. You know, we had mm-hmm. trans people, uh, you know, starring in uh, films on Netflix and you know, well, every, everywhere. You know, there were trans models everywhere. There were trans uh, political candidates. Um, you know, at the first few pages of Trans Britain, I've just gone on a splurge of naming people <laughs> and saying, you know, this, this is where we were. And at the time that the t- Time magazine said, I think in 2015, this is the trans tipping point, mm. you know, that finally trans people are visible mm-hmm. and you know, respected and, and making progress. And I guess that was probably the red rag to the bull as far as the uh, you know, the Conservatives were concerned, because yeah. not Conservatives is it, I think, Conservative Party, mm-hmm. but Conservatives as in terms of uh, right-wing evangelicals. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, we are in the throes of a big strop by a particular political group, which has roots all around the world, but particularly mm-hmm. in Britain and America. And we've had the kind of um, low-value, low-rent politicians who thought that anything that divides people, anything that gets people arguing, um, benefits them. Mm. Because as long as we're divided you know, on whether it was Brexit, nearly 50-50, whether it was on trans people uh, or whatever... That's good for them because we're not we're not scrutinising them, mm-hmm. and they can get on with doing the bad things that they want to do, which turned out to be you know plundering the bank. Uh, so, yeah. so uh, you know, I I hope that this sort of pattern continues in the sense that as you know the shackles go on to the ringleaders in America, mm-hmm. that we will actually start to mop up what's mm. happened in Britain mm. and then survey the wreckage because I, you know, I, it breaks my heart that as a country, we've brought ourselves so low mm-hmm. um, in such a short space of time and in service of nothing but lies. People yeah. have trashed their reputations to, uh, to, 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 you know, to dunk on the trans. Mm. Um, 
I'm not going to name names because mm. everybody knows. Th- yeah, people know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, 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 it's people, there's going to be lots of PhDs. Yes. Further down the road. And there's probably a lot of you know, psychological study, I think, to be made of how yeah. it is, generally speaking, that people get um, reeled into conspiracy mm. theories, you know, whether mm. it's QAnon or, uh, or gender critical, mm. whatever. So, so yeah, there's, I can't see to the, the, the sunlit uplands in the future to answer your question until we've, we've, you know, we've won the war and mm. can take stock of, because we, we've got a generation of damage in front mm. of us. You know, if it stopped today, then there are people who have been harmed by what has happened. Mm. People who are scarred. Um, people, families broken by the, the rifts that are created by, you know, you've got a gender critical person in your family, everybody sort of moves mm. away from them because mm. they're the mad uncle or aunt. Yeah. Um, and there's, yeah, there is, they've managed, thank God, not to change any laws, um, but they've tried all the ways around the side to try mm. and have the same effect. You know, they have promulgated a lie about what the Equality Act says mm-hmm. and does and what the gender recognition act says and does and um you know the, that's 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 an alternative to to passing laws on a you know if you want to change the law then do it in the proper way yeah and, and get everybody to vote for it don't don't do it by creating an alternative reality where mm. people believe that the law says something else yeah i mean we've covered over the last 18 months especially the way the media have been yeah. um i think yeah as you said we don't need to name people because i think people that are listening to this podcast especially already know um they're litigious bastards yeah. anyway <laughs> <laughs> um but to end to end this fantastic fantastic chat who do you think are the up-and-coming or the trans voices that we should be listening to and paying attention to right now oh goodness there's actually there's so many of them I think there's a big difference in the in our in my day we had one leading organization and mm-hmm. everybody knew who we were. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that's one of the things that would replace us. Mm. Um, but actually what's happened is we've got smaller organizations or individuals mm. who are absolute stars. You know, one of the one that comes to mind is Katie Montgomery. Mm-hmm brilliant podcaster or YouTuber, uh, and very well-spoken, very intelligent. Sean Fay, you know, I, mm. uh, I, I spend as much time promoting her book yeah. as, <laughs> as I do vlogging my own. You know, so, you know, so the transgender issue, it's brilliant. I'm so jealous. I wish I'd thought of some of the things that she's <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's the good thing about being an old and crusty <laughs> old woman is that you know the, the younger generation actually are better than us <laughs> it's it's so you know rather than getting grumpy about it and i think mm-hmm. so much of what's going on at the moment is about mm-hmm. people of my generation ba- uh, baby boomers who don't like the fact that the world has changed yeah. and it's not their their plaything anymore mm-hmm. and they just hate the fact that young people are doing it better Mm. you know i've grown up through all this stuff and what it's done to me rather than making me bitter and twisted is to make me enthusiastic about the 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 things you know the the best way of paying respect to what 
Stephen and uh, and mm. Claire and myself did for Crest Change is to do well as mm. a trans person and be a really good advocate. Mm. Or oh, another one, Philosophy Tube. What's her name? I can't remember. Um, Abigail Thorne. She's another oh, brilliant. Oh, I don't think I know person. her. No. Oh, you should, you should check her out. She's got yeah, she's got to. a whole. Um, <clears throat> Uh, over of uh, of um, YouTube, she she ah. she actually teaches philosophy via her YouTube, uh, and she oh, transitioned. I do. She looks yeah. so familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah in, I do. I yeah, do. in the middle of in, in the middle of being a YouTube star, which I think yes. is so cool. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, but Amazing. there's so I mean that these are ones I'm just grabbing from the air. Yeah, but, this, yeah. I know that was a so big question. <laughs> I know I know only as uh, Twitter handles. You know, yeah. I've, I've always <laughs> that was made why I didn't point. recognize Abigail's name. Yeah, yes. I know her face from the, the picture, but I don't know yeah. the handle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you know, in, uh, I, I've always had this thing that when people wrote to us and pressed for change, I didn't ask them to give me a description of what they were. They just told me what their problem was. Yeah. And I pointed them in the direction of somebody who could help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and years later, I might meet somebody and think, oh, goodness, you're nothing like what I imagined. <laughs> you can't stop yourself imagining. Yeah. Um, but it didn't matter. It mm-hmm. meant that uh, our justice was it was blind to the sort mm-hmm. of things that can you know, lead you down prejudices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so similarly, um, you know, there were you know, particularly the parents representing their their trans kids. Mm. Yeah, they they have very good reasons to need to be uh, anonymous. Mm. So I know them only as their Twitter handle. Some of them yeah. have come and introduced themselves to me, and I say, "Don't tell me your name. Yeah. I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> just just I love what you do, <laughs> and I would just know you as Dad Trans or Mini Mum yeah. or whatever." <laughs> So, um, so yeah, and I think that makes us more robust and uh, resilient mm. as well because, um, you know, we, thinking back, you know, if we'd faced the sort of opposition that's out there today, I don't think we'd have stood a chance. Mm. But um, trans people being this, this uh, informal network, mm. I don't understand. You know, it, does, it isn't planned. It isn't architected. It's just there. Yeah. Um, this group of people who all share, uh, because it's our life experience, mm. all share um, the knowledge of what we need to do to put the world right. Mm. And that is enough in common for people to work together and and achieve that. And it's you know it's inspiring. I I, I I've often thought you know when when is the point when it's decent for me to to log off and <laughs> just wander away and do the garden or whatever. Because I'm getting on a bit there. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I I can't because I'd be missing it. It's so damned exciting yeah. to watch. So I am. I, I hope they realise how, how much in awe I am of all of them. Um, and why I try to put down people's attempts to stick Stephen or myself or whoever on a pedestal no, we were just ordinary trans people <laughs> using whatever talents we got at the time. Uh, and we were just, you know, looking around and thinking, oh, there's nobody else to do this. Yeah. We've got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but now there's this wonderful, uh, and that's what makes us unstoppable. I think the, the, the meanies are losing already. I don't think some of them realise it yet, but I already see a, a slow switch of the tide 
Yeah. Uh, and I think that will ga gather speed. Um, and, you know, as people get, you know, get to be curious, mm. aware of previously, they, they, they sort of thought this is too dangerous a world, you know, thing to go for, mm. then, you know, our books are, yeah. <laughs> are going to be <laughs> there, to, there to help them as they've been all along. As you said at the start, honestly, I could listen to Christine for hours. Hours. And you can. You, you can, can go well, to yeah. Apple Podcasts, <laughs> yeah. get on her podcast, Just Plain Sense, and you can listen to her for hours yeah. on end. And also she recommended, not only, well, she didn't recommend, she told us about her own book, mm. um, and also some other books that you should read this history month. So, um, as always, we will link to them um, in the episode bio, or link to the, her socials on the episode bio, mm -hmm. and also check out the website at bottomingpodcast.com. Beautiful. Um, we'll leave you here for now. Mm -hmm. Gather your thoughts, have a think, write down some things, write mm -hmm. down some notes, mm -hmm. and then go on to episode two. Yeah. <laughs> you will be tested. And you can follow Christine on Twitter at Christine Burns, C H R. <laughs> no, we don't need to, that's fine. <laughs> Perfect. Cool. We'll see you we'll over. We'll see you on a party. Yeah. Bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.